Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We're In Social Work. Hello, I'm Charles Sims, your host for In Social Work. This week's episode is the second of a two-part discussion on integrating spirituality into social work practice. In this continuing conversation, Ms. Bonnie Collins and Ms. Elaine Hammond talk more specifically about assessment protocols and intervention strategies. They discuss the use of rituals, ceremony, prayer, and meditation in their work. They also review a three-stage healing process for survivors of childhood sexual abuse. Additionally, Ms. Collins and Ms. Hammond identify resources for social workers wanting more information on how to incorporate spirituality into their practice. Finally, it is understood that the use of spirituality will not fit into every social worker's practice philosophy. Therefore, our guests end their conversation with words of encouragement for those who might be considering its integration. Bonnie Collins is a retired licensed clinical social worker with more than 30 years of experience. Her background includes agency-based clinical practice, private clinical practice, teaching at the undergraduate and graduate levels, and program direction. Ms. Collins has conducted seminars on integrating spirituality into psychotherapy and for many years taught a course on spirituality and social work at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Elaine Hammond is a licensed social worker with 35 years of professional practice. She specializes in working with very young children and their families, as well as with adults who have experienced traumatic events in early childhood. Ms. Hammond currently teaches a course on integrating spirituality into social work practice at the University at Buffalo. This is the second of a two-part discussion that took place in October of 2014. Do you think we could move to interventions or absolutely. what else? Absolutely. Listeners should know, I mean, there are absolutely tools out there. To a point, I'm a believer that a tool is only as good as your comfort with it. Uh-huh. For us to sit here and say, you know, this is my favorite one or whatever, I'm a believer, as you are, in those open-ended questions. Mm -hmm. I use them in lethality assessment. I use them in good fit for intervention assessments. Mm -hmm. I use them for a lot of Mm -hmm. things Mm -hmm. to get to the spirit of Mm -hmm. life. That's a great phrase, to get to the spirit of life. But then what do you do Mm -hmm. afterwards? (laughs) Because there are some really specific tools that are pretty consistent with Mm -hmm. folks. Aside, We were laughing before about the candles and the incense. (laughs) Okay, so you can light candles if your organization permits that. Incense if nobody's going to, you know, like have an asthma attack. But there are other tools that are pretty standard in Mm -hmm. many ways, although they may be used in slightly different ways, Uh with people who integrate spirituality into their clinical Mm -hmm. interventions. So talk with us a little, and I'm pretty sure I know where you're going first, and my guess is the genogram. Yes, that is so significant, and I think 
most social workers, by the time they get out of school, know how to use a, a genogram. And if they don't, they should go and get training in it. And when you add the spirituality to the genogram, it's an easy way to talk about it. That isn't, you don't feel like you're interrogating. And you can say simple things like, did you ever see your grandparents in church? Or what do you do on Sundays or on Saturdays? Or I can easily say to people, do you have a spiritual connectedness? And mm -hmm. I'm amazed at how the floodgates open. But I think the important part for me in terms of interventions specifically is that many times what works is a ritual of some sort. And you usually find some sort of an object that's sacred. I have so many stories about them that I can't think of one. Well, you were, <laughs> you were telling me about the divorcing couple. Oh, that's a wonderful Tell one. that story, <laughs> yeah. because it's a perfect yes. example. Yes, I had the couple, and for a while there I was doing uh, custody evaluations for the courts. And I was doing a custody evaluation for them. They had one child and they were going through a divorcing process. And they were so concerned about, they both loved this little kid so much that they wanted to stay together as close as possible for the sake of the kid. But the marriage was over, and they came to me and said, we need to do a ritual to end our marriage. You know, you do a ritual to get married. What do you do for, do you have a divorce party? <laughs> you know, they didn't like that idea. So I said, well, I suggest you think about it. And when you get a ritual, come back and tell me about it. Well, two weeks later, she called for an appointment, and the two of them came in, and they said what they decided to do, and they'd already done it at that point, was walk up on the peace bridge mm -hmm. and take their wedding rings and throw them in the river. It was so powerful. And then they walked hand in hand off the bridge and back to their independent living arrangement that mm -hmm. they had. But I just thought that was so, so beautiful and even though the rings were gone and they were divorced, they were going to help raise this kid no matter what. It was a beautiful thing mm -hmm. to see. And I don't create the rituals with them even most of the time. It's that they come up with them. I will say, do you suppose you have a sacred object or a ritual you'd like to do to honor whatever the trauma may be? Mm -hmm. You know, look at 9-11. Look at all the rituals that went with Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And every religion you look at has rituals and traditions, daily, monthly, weekly, holidays. And why not have a ritual when you're ending a relationship because of death or because of ill health or because of divorce? So I really encourage them to work on some sort of ritual. The other thing I think is important is prayer. And that brings up a lot of discussion among the students and among my clients too. But I think people worry about praying with their clients because they may not believe in the same way. I say to them, let them bring that out. If you've made it safe enough for them to talk to you and they want to pray and they say to you, will you pray with me? Why not? So they pray to Buddha, and you're not a Buddhist. So what? <laughs> you're not proselytizing to them. They aren't to you. It's just a moment of comfort and spirituality. So I try to get them to try that when they're in the field, if they have somebody they can try it on. And you can play around with it and say, let's do meditation. That's very similar to prayer. Mm -hmm. And there's a book by Lashan on meditation I'd like. And then there's a a book about prayer as medicine by Larry Dossey. I, I don't mm -hmm. know if he's still around, but the idea that prayer is good medicine is mm -hmm. a powerful statement, and I think it is. You know, mm -hmm. and the other thing I love to work on is dream work. 
You were telling yeah. me a little bit about that yeah. at the yeah. very end of our phone conversation. I didn't really have a chance to follow up with yeah. that. I know that you were recently at Chautauqua Institution, yes. uh-huh. very near to my hometown, yes. <laughs> doing some workshop teaching yes. around that. So how did that begin for you? So many people think of dream work in that classic Freudian or Jungian kind of frame. <laughs> and they say, you know, so every apple tree indicates incest yes. and <laughs> bees are always about messages or you know I don't know uh, because I'm really not that familiar with it but we tend to think of it as complicated and rather concrete yeah but I really got the impression that that is not at all where That's you're coming not how from I, in this. no I come from a training I took in, in dream work by Jeremy Taylor and actually he's a Unitarian minister but his role is he doesn't have a congregation he goes around the world developing dream groups <laughs> So I took his pattern and went some training with him. And at Chautauqua Institution, I do a dream group every morning for a week. In my own practice, I have some dream groups, but I also work with dreams individually. It's interesting that if you think about the trauma of death to someone who's just lost a dear one, a mate, a child, or whatever, a lot of times that person comes to them in their dreams after they're dead. I mean, it's almost normal that that happens. It is almost normal, yeah. yes. And so I ask them to tell me about the dream, what they saw, what they heard, and I ask questions about the dream, and I ask them to tell me the dream in the present tense. So you're really in it, and I will try to get in it with them. And then the method I was taught is so good. What you say, particularly if you're in a group, but even with an individual, I will say, this is your dream, it's not mine, you are the best interpreter of the dream. However, if this were my dream, this is what it would mean to me. And if you do that in a group, one person shares the dream and the rest take it on as their own, the insights that come from that are beautiful. You don't need a dictionary, you don't need, it's people relate to that dream as their own, Mm -hmm. and the dreamer sits back and listens to what they're saying. So it's not a hot seat approach, that's how some dream groups work. And I found such wonderful wisdom from these people with these dreams. So I've used it, especially with survivors of childhood sex abuse. They have nightmares also with that. And uh, it's food for therapy, because if they bring in the nightmares, we Mm -hmm. we talk about what do you suppose that is, and so Mm -hmm. on. And dreams have been used for thousands of years for therapy and interpretation. Mm -hmm. I don't think we do enough of it in this country because it's not scientific enough, you know. All bumblebees don't mean you're going to get stung. (laughs) So that's another thing that I work with a lot. And another thing I wanted to mention, which was a little different, I think, than what people might be thinking about as spirituality, is labyrinth work. Mm -hmm. So in my old office, I had a labyrinth in my backyard. And a labyrinth is not, they don't have blocks in a a labyrinth. You just follow it to the center, and you follow it back out to the entrance. And while you're walking, it's like a walking meditation, present yourself with some sort of issue that's bothering you, and think about it as you're walking. And I can't tell you how many times people have come out of there and said, I got it. This is what I'm going to do. So it's a beautiful way to tune out the world, go inside, because I think a lot of spirituality is about going inside and finding Mm -hmm. out who you are. And then the other aspect is community. You find a community that goes inside like you do. <laughs> and that seems to help people mm-hmm. use all the tools for healing. I mean, it's a very important healing method, I think. And telling your story. Pinkola Estes is a Women Who Run With the Wolves. Wolves yes. She talks about stories as medicine. Mm-hmm. You know, when you tell your stories to compassionate listeners, 
you heal from that. And that's a spiritual moment when everybody is sitting and mm-hmm. around you and listening to your story and honoring it. That's spirituality as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. And, and in terms of trauma work, yes. is so very close to prolonged exposure therapy. And I yes. always then follow that up with, which is not quite as prolonged as you might think that it <laughs> yes, is. Yes. But to hear Edna Foa I was privileged enough to do my prolonged exposure therapy training directly with, with her. her. Oh, lucky you. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, to hear her talk about that, to hear her talk about how it evolved, she simply would not use spiritual terms. But really? that still is that kind of narrative. Did she say you that out loud? I will not use spiritual terms. Um, I have heard her use the phrase, we don't need the voodoo. I've heard her use that phrase, but I think it speaks to her age. I think it speaks to her own context. I think it speaks to the work that she's done, especially in Israel. Mm -hmm. I think that that position for her Mm -hmm. speaks to a lot of things. Yes. But what she has come up with is so very close to these traditions of intense Mm -hmm. storytelling, intense narrative Mm -hmm. with witnessing by a community. Now, in Prolonged exposure therapy, the therapist sits in place of the community. But I also think about the restorative justice uh, traditions where not only the person who has done the harm, but the person who is harmed and members of the community all have opportunity to give their narrative with everyone else listening intently Mm -hmm. and really witnessing to their story, their narrative. And it is a sacred time. It is a very sacred. I think as social workers, we do a lot of sacred work. I think Mm -hmm. it scares new social workers at first. But if you dig in, it's a wonderful, I mean, it's an Mm -hmm. honor to be in the field, Mm -hmm. I think. It is. And it's a calling. You don't just stumble on it. You feel pulled into it. And it's that makes it somewhat spiritual, I think. Yeah, you know, I think so. And I love your community thing. We said before that you were more into the community, I was more into the individual. And I think that may be true, but I think the community is so important when it, it comes to spirituality. And of course I grew up in a community because of my mm-hmm. Unitarian background, but whatever it is, AA, it's a wonderful community. Al Anon, another community. Spirituality gets in there all the time, mm-hmm. you know. I think that's just great. Just wonderful that that happens. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm. What are some of your other favorite interventions? Well, the ritual in any way, I think, works towards spirituality. And healing ceremonies or ceremonies that honor a passage of some kind. Mm-hmm. I remember that one of my clients was a mother and her daughter was just entering puberty and got her period. and. The mother had a party for her to celebrate Mm -hmm. her womanhood. And I just thought, wow. I said, how did the girl react? She said, well, she was a little anxious that we were doing it for that reason, you know. But if we did more of that, the theory was that if it was honored like that, maybe there wouldn't be so many cramps. (laughs) Well, and or people would stop being uncomfortable because it would be be an honored part of culture. Mm -hmm. As it well should be. I think it's Mm -hmm. the same with a divorce. There's not rituals for that. The couple that dropped their rings at, on the Peace Bridge were looking for a ritual to mark the passing of a time in their life, but not right. to destroy it. I mean, mm-hmm. they still have the memories of being together and they had a child together. 
So right. we don't have enough ritual, I don't mm-hmm. think, in this culture. Do you ever do rituals with survivors as they begin to take on a new identity but mm-hmm. may have trouble letting go of victimhood, may yeah. have trouble letting go of old ways of seeing mm-hmm. themselves? I mean, they've come to see you because those old ways aren't useful anymore. Mm -hmm. And yet to let them go can feel really vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Will anyone Mm -hmm. still love me? Will I still have community? How will I get my Mm -hmm. needs met? Do you ever do rituals with folks around that? Yes, one of the things that uh, from Yvonne Dolan, who is one of the people I follow quite regularly, is to have rituals around stages of development as you heal from childhood sex abuse. So you start out victimized. And as you grow up, you see yourself as a victim. I have a lot of clients who will come in and say, I'm a victim of childhood sex abuse. Not a survivor, a victim, because they still feel victimized by it. So I see as a therapist, part of my role is to help them move on to being a survivor. That part is pretty easy because you can use the group for that. You can point Mm -hmm. out to them that they're alive and well and they survived Mm -hmm. it. But the third part of Dolan's idea is thriver. And boy, do they have trouble with that. And part of the reason for that is being a survivor feels so wonderful compared to being a victim. Mm -hmm. So there's a timing to propose that they go beyond survivor. They don't want to do that at first. They don't mind going beyond victim. (laughs) And a survivor you can be proud of. You know, it's like somebody Mm -hmm. in AA standing up and saying, hi, I'm an Mm -hmm. alcoholic. You can be proud of it at an AA meeting. And again, it has community. It has attachments. You know, this is how I'll I'll get my needs met Mm -hmm. now that I'm not a victim anymore. Because as a survivor, these are the resources I can access. Yeah, just leave me here. (laughs) I'm fine. Yeah. There is that concept of thriving. Is it too independent? Yes. Am I now going to be responsible for others? Yes. Uh, what will that mm-hmm. mean? Who will take care of me? Yeah. And I was just getting used to being a survivor and being proud that yeah. I survived. It reminds me of a story about my youngest son. When he was about three years old, he tied his shoe. And I said, you can tie? How wonderful that is. And his face fell and he looked at me and said, do I have to do it forever? Oh, my gracious. <laughs> Yeah, every morning. I just morning. did it once. I didn't know I had to do it forever. Tiger shoes every morning for yes. the rest of your life. Not now. It's all Velcro now. But, As it should be. But I, I think yeah. the survivor thing is the same thing. If they start to thrive, they sometimes go back because it's too scary out there. Mm-hmm. It's too open as a thriver. Mm-hmm. And so they go back to being a survivor. But I think it's our role as therapists to nudge them a little bit out of that nest, you know, mm-hmm. and into the thriving world and it, it can be difficult yeah. but I think that's I have a sense of responsibility about that even you know? if it's in a subsequent contact I, yes. mean, I at this point in my career work very much from that you know you're here now what's the work we're going to yes. do right now yes. and then very often people will go away in this yes. new now mm-hmm. state mm-hmm. for a period of time and I let them know when this isn't useful anymore Move Come on, on back, mm-hmm. and we'll move to a new mm-hmm. spot. Mm-hmm. I agree with you that that thriving thing, and people say, oh, you know, to move someone to the survivor thing, and mm-hmm. you know, it's so hard, and this is great, yeah, and it's it, easy part. <laughs> it, it does feel like the easy part. Mm-hmm. It does. Mm-hmm. New issues come up in mm-hmm. thriving, mm-hmm. in my experience, so yes. often about bitterness and betrayal. Yes, and it's a little. Yeah. Disconcerting when you're the therapist and they come in beginning the thriving stage and they're angry as hell. You know, yes. you think, uh oh, here we go again. Yeah. Are we stepping back? No, I think you become awakened to yes. what this all means yeah. and what it's all about. Um, and, and in terms hard. of spirituality, sometimes 
the conversations I'm having with them is that you know this is really uncomfortable. Yeah. But it's, it's uncomfortable mm-hmm. because you are aware now. Yeah. You are so much more awake mm-hmm. to your life. Mm-hmm. It's really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I say to them when they come in with that, I said, oh, bring them to me. I want to hear those rituals and let's talk about it a little more. I'm the compassionate listener for them and that helps too. So then they edge into the thriverhood uh, slowly but surely. Mm-hmm. And some don't stay there. They back up yeah. into, I mean, it's like AA or any of those. Sometimes mm-hmm. they go back to drinking. You know, it's one yeah. of those things that happens. But, and I think the healing ceremonies that I've done when we're talking about some of the ritual, <laughs> there's been a lot of writing unsent letters to the perp mm-hmm. who might be dead. And mm-hmm. I had one client who took a bowl and went out to the cemetery and ripped the letter up and set it on fire in front mm-hmm. of the gravesite and that I, kind of thing. I almost hesitate <laughs> to say this on tape, but I am a fan of burning things. <laughs> um, Take not, a note. <laughs> really, not really large things. Yes. But that is a technique yeah. that has served me mm-hmm. well, well really, over really the years. it disappears, doesn't it, when mm-hmm. it burns? It really does. And, um, it has a magical yeah. Quality yes, as it, it as it disappears and goes into the air, the uh-huh. air accepts it. Yeah. Uh, the other story I love to tell is my trauma rug story. My colleague Trina Lachlan and I wrote a book mm-hmm. called The Power of a Story, and one of the stories was of a woman who, at the end of her work with me, asked if she could take the throw rug that was in front of my couch home and wash it. Of course. As a woman who's not too domestic, my first thought was, shame on me, it must be filthy, and she's trying to do me a favor. I said, oh, sure, you can take it home. I'm sorry that it was so dirty. She said, no. She said, it's not dirty. She said, when I was sitting here and learning to heal, I poured the stories I had to share into the rug because I didn't want to pour them into you. I don't want you to be burned out or dragged down with my stories. So I poured them all into the rug, and if you notice, I didn't look at you often. I did notice that and thought it was just part of her dysfunction. (laughs) And so she took it home and washed, and she said, it went out of the washing machine in the water, it went into the creek, into the ocean, Mm -hmm. evaporated somewhere. So it's really Mm -hmm. gone. Those stories are Mm -hmm. gone and don't need to be repeated. I thought that was so beautiful. And what a relief, I'm not a slob. (laughs) (laughs) But that was one of the most powerful moments, I think, in my career to have that happen and not be aware of it until Mm -hmm. she said it. So that's the example of ritual. And of course, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of flushing down the toilet (laughs) rituals. Well, there are a lot of water rituals, just as there are a lot of fire rituals, and they come down Mm -hmm. to us over thousands of years. (laughs) There are washing and water rituals that come down to us over thousands of years. Cleansing kind of thing. Absolutely. And water in dream work is often symbolic of emotions or feelings. So you are burning or flushing not only, I mean, they say they're flushing the perp down the toilet, but you're Mm -hmm. also flushing those bad feelings out of you, and that's wonderful. Right, it is. It can be, you know, just as a practical matter, Mm -hmm. flushing can be a little hard on the plumbing. (laughs) You do, (laughs) you have to watch (laughs) that. I've had more than one client, however, do their burning ritual near a water source oh, and then clean the bowl ah, in the water source good idea. so that whatever ashes or residue uh-huh. is left 
is then washed like away. Like um, especially yeah. if it's a running water source, like mm-hmm. a stream or a mm-hmm. river or something like that. Makes me think of the Tibetans with their... Uh, yes, with the sand mandalas, and yes. then you pour the sand into, into the... Into the Niagara River they right. did when they were here. Yeah, yeah whichever river yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. Canada Way Creek in Chautauqua County. <laughs> build one in Lilydale almost every year. So. Yes, I've seen that. Yeah. Yes. Oh, we can say Lilydale. <laughs> we could say Lilydale. We won't talk about Lilydale. But uh, students keep asking me for field trips to Lilydale. <laughs> drive past there multiple times a week. Oh, good for you. So, you were a little concerned about exact resources. Yes. I mean, we've had some conversation about that. Mm-hmm. I think where we are right now is that the bottom line is it's really not hard to get this stuff. Even Google, it doesn't even have to necessarily be mm-hmm. an academic search. In fact, sometimes it, the academic search doesn't give you as much as... Some common it doesn't. Kinds of people. I do want to come back to David Hodge uh, uh-huh. for just a couple of moments. Mm-hmm. Some of his, and he is indeed prolific, oh, and sorry. within that prolific nature, I find some of his writing somewhat problematic in that he sometimes uses terminology, especially he uses this term people of faith in what seems to be, to me, a, a very closed way. I was way. just going to say a selected group. Yeah, it's very yeah. selective. That said, he has some really interesting instruments out there that should you find yourself yes. working with young men of Muslim heritage, um, young men of mm-hmm. color, although he is not, his uh, probably at this point middle-aged, although he's, he is, he looks very young. He is not a man of color, but he's done some very interesting work and actually has instruments. Yes. We have kind of, I mean, you've used the words she a lot. You know, you've talked about women's groups. Mm -hmm. So often folks who are coming to you for work as survivors of childhood sexual abuse Mm -hmm. are very often female. Mm -hmm. Bringing up these issues with men is a different, can be a different ballgame. Yes. It yes. really I can be. Much experience with that. He has done some writing I around that, that. I saw him when I would go to the Society of Spirituality. He was always there when he was first brand new to the field, I think. Yes. And I did use some of his regular kinds of scales and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a new book coming out. Another one who's pretty prolific is Helen Land. Do you know that name? I do not know that name. Well, it's called Spirituality, Religion, and Faith in Psychotherapy, and it's due in November. And she although the title's to familiar to me, so maybe well, that's, that's a one of the common title. Well, it's maybe it may be one of the postcards sitting on my desk well, waiting for be, release. Yeah, and it's in November, so right. it's coming up. But she talks about using guided imagery, which we haven't mm-hmm. talked much about. Mm-hmm. Uh, your safe place kind of mm-hmm. thing, the guided imagery. Mm-hmm. She talks about music, art, and writing, and psychodrama, and dance, mm-hmm. and dance all of those yes. kinds of things yes. as a way to tap Things that integrate it. the body. Yes, uh, for some folks so. in some traditions, yoga uh, yes. fulfills mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Uh, I had a client once actually for whom kickboxing actually fulfilled that. I could that. see that. She had a completely non-deistic way of looking at the world and needed a pro-social outlet for her body and strengthening her body in the kickboxing. Uh, uh, empowering. It was, it was very empowering mm-hmm. for her and was really, it was like a kind of liturgical dance yeah. in many ways. I could see that happening. That was quite yeah. interesting. Yeah. I, if I hadn't become a therapist, I wanted to be a dance therapist originally. And I took training in that and went to a lot of New York City's mental hospital and danced with the 
uh, metal patients in the late 50s, early 60s, and at that point they all had Thorazine. I mean, they were zombies. And our role as dancers, we were a group of dancers, was to get them to feel their feet on the floor. Right, which they because, might not have been oh, able to feel. Yeah, with yeah. all the medication they Yeah, well, Thorazine can be good. Yeah, but mural, I, and mural. I love the dance idea, yeah, especially dancing. because it incorporates the body, which Bessel right. Lundekart would want us to do. Yes. But also, that's where a lot of the memories are from yes. any kind of abuse. It's yep. not head stuff. You got to yeah. get the head and the heart and the gut all together, and mm-hmm. dance can do that beautifully. Yeah. I think. Well, even biologically, I mean, there yes. is more limbic yes. tissue yep. in the rest of our body, especially in our torsos and yep. that small intestine, than there ever is in the brain. Mm-hmm. The amygdala is important. That's yes, Olympic that's especially important. it's very yeah. it's very important. <laughs> Although I'm a hippocampus fan, I figure everybody in trauma <laughs> well, you really get them together. <laughs> yes, everybody in trauma, but they're you know they're all about the amygdala. Somebody's got to be about the hippocampus, so that's where I well, well the amygdala can exist without the hippocampus they need each other they do need each other they (laughs) They should be married (laughs) and one that i'm going to bring up is desmond tutu's new book on forgiveness Um, i have not seen it yet but it's it's powerful it it is Mm -hmm. powerful Mm -hmm. and there is a free online and i want to say it's 30 day that actually it's 30 event so although you can do it in 30 days, they're beginning to recognize that that's too fast for a lot of folks. Uh, you don't have to read the book in order to do the online program. You don't have to do the online program to benefit from the book. But it is, it's a really interesting pairing from someone who comes from both restorative justice tradition, but also you know, as an Anglican bishop for all that time mm. in South Africa as a man of color. I, his experience, <laughs> I, I mean, really, and mm-hmm. having been involved in the commissions there at, at the end of apartheid. This is someone who understands the concept of forgiving the unforgivable. So I, I really, I recommend wow, that. that's a good point. Although there's little that is specific toward forgiveness in Thich Nhat Hanh's work, he too is a man who understands forgiving the unforgivable, coming up as a young monk in Vietnam, having members of his own community, his own mentees actually, be part of the immolation tradition that began, mm. just as a pure desperation to make a nonviolent and certainly we could sit here for hours and talk about is Especially self-immolation a nonviolent yeah. act. Yeah. I kind always of, think of even like Jesus Christ, whose word on the cross, I share that with people a lot, was forgive them, they know not what they do. They know not what they do. And if some survivors can grab that concept, and some of them can, they realize that, that the people who perpetrated they know not what they do. Mm-hmm. And it's a powerful discussion that comes out of that mm-hmm. because they want to go and hit them and kill them. And mm-hmm. They know not what they do many times. Mm-hmm. They don't consciously yeah. and deliberately say, this is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. So forgiveness is a biggie. Yeah. It is, and it's a tough concept. Yes, I have the most luck with it, you know, coming at it through that same paradigm that Han and Tutu both yes. look at, that the holding on to the feelings of retribution, the feelings of hatred, only make one's own life small. Yeah, we talk about that a lot with clients. Yeah. Yeah. Revenge is not sweet. Yeah, forgiveness Mm -hmm. actually does very little for the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. Good point, yeah. And forgiveness is all about freeing yourself Mm -hmm. and moving into that survivor mode. I also think that forgiveness can move you into a thriving mode 
Without you even knowing it. Without you even knowing it. (laughs) And so getting rid of some of the discomfort around the the bitterness and all. Peace is every breath. Peace is every step. The miracle of mindfulness. All three of those are some of Hans works that work and teach and I share with folks that, on a pretty regular basis. The idea of, of writing for people who have mm-hmm. experienced trauma. Mm-hmm. Some of the most beautiful writing I've read has come out of their Absolutely. poems or their journals or whatever that are beautiful to witness. Songs, you know? music, yeah, yeah. I've had... You begin to think after a while that and students have said this to me more than clients, do you have to be abused in order to find spirituality? (laughs) My son is essentially an artist, Uh and I remember him asking, you know, does something bad have to happen to me for me to be really creative? And then there was the day he said, well, if I become an artist, will I become mentally ill? Because so many great artists... Although, as we look back in history, would we actually diagnose them that way? You know, yeah. who knows? Again, it's all about the question. question. But that the mm-hmm. angst of the artistic yeah. life mm-hmm. does artistry come out of a place pain. that isn't mindful of pain? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's a lot of great artists that were mentally ill. I mean, Absolutely. So that's a very interesting question he would ask. Yeah. You know, that's, what did you say? <laughs> I know that I remember myself saying, the short answer, honey, is of course not. Mm-hmm. You know, you can grow up to be healthy and whole and, an and, and be an artist. <laughs> Both and. Last yes. words of wisdom. When you agreed to do this, what were you hoping people would take away? Well, basically, I was in the role of a salesperson. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, I want to sell the idea of integrating spirituality into social work practice. That's how I started it, and it was wonderful the way it grew and made me feel, yeah, that's where it belongs. So mm-hmm. for me, if those people listening to this podcast can take some of what we've talked about and read some of the literature we've talked about and take it and use it in the field, that would be beautiful. And I think the way they have to do that is they have to find their own spirituality first and foremost. Mm -hmm. They have to experience a client who has it and will share it with them. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of fresh, brand new social workers. Mm -hmm. And they have to be creative themselves to help clients create rituals of some sort. I began to collect the rituals because I thought some of them were marketable. You know, they could be shared with somebody else. But I think... That was my big crusade as a social worker has always been spirituality and self-awareness. And that goes together. You know, those two things go together. Very important, I think. And my worry is there's no bridge there. That they take the course, they learn from it, they find it fascinating. But do they bridge it over to practice? Do they practice it? I hope so, Mm -hmm. but of course I don't have exposure to that to know. It would be a good study. Well, it would be, and hopefully there is either a current PhD student or an aspiring PhD student out there who would like to do that sort yeah. of work, specifically in social work. Yeah, I think that um, would be And maybe I think it's already our, been done. I don't know. I haven't read a lot lately. Well, there are studies more like that coming out of the sociological and the psychological yes. okay. literature. Yeah. I think that social workers can be in such a unique position to appreciate context. And so we're often thinking of the context of the client, but a study like this might be the context of the practitioner. The process between them, Mm -hmm. the practitioner and the client. Yep, absolutely. That process. 
Very important. There are lots of good questions out there. Yeah. It's exciting work. You know, it I've is. always said that. Uh, social work, you know, I wanted to be a social worker from the time I was 12. I just knew that's where I wanted to be. One last story. I went to Turkey a few years ago. We're out in the middle of this big field, stopping to go to the bathroom in the hole in the ground that they have in Turkey. And I look out over the horizon, there's a big tent. This is the middle of Turkey. And on the tent is a sign in English that says group dynamics. So everybody's going to the bathroom in my group. I said, I'll be right back. And I went to the <laughs> tent in the middle of Turkey and I opened the flap. I mean, it was literally a tent. I opened the flap and there was a woman standing there and she said in perfect English, can I help you? And I said, well, I run groups. I know about group dynamics. What is this? She said, oh, it's a conference, international conference. We're learning about groups and so on. She said, where are you from? I said, I'm from Buffalo, New York. She was from London, England. And I said, what do you do? As She said, most of us are social workers. She said, I work with adult survivors of childhood sex abuse. Oh, my heavens. And I said, gee, I just published a book on that. She said, you did. So I got her name and address, and I sent her a book. I never heard from her. I don't know what happened. But that's an example of how far afield you can go and still find social work. I mean, it was just Absolutely. a fun kind of thing to have that happen. I mean, what's the chance of that? <laughs> <laughs> so the, the lesson from that story is if you want to go live in Turkey, you could be a social worker in Turkey. You absolutely, could. You absolutely <laughs> Or wherever could. you go. Yeah. yeah. And wherever you are, when they asked me to interview you to mm -hmm. sit and chat, really, my hope was really to give people courage. Yes. Because I do think that it's encouragement. You know, I want mm -hmm. to give encouragement. Mm -hmm. This is no harder than asking people about their sexuality I histories. Know, so this is no harder than asking people about their finances. This is. In fact, it's a little easier. It, <laughs> it can be easier, yeah. and it'll be a more fun yes. conversation. <laughs> I think, yeah. And it funds the client's courage mm -hmm. after that. I love your use of the word courage. That's a that's a very I love that word and that's exactly what it's about. And you know, even the old books, Courage to Heal, you know, and those mm -hmm. are because there is courage among traumatized people. Just amazing. There's enormous courage. I just said this week <laughs> I am endlessly honored mm -hmm. that people with the stories that they tell have gotten up that morning tied their shoes as you would say <laughs> you know they've tied their shoes and they've gotten they they've gotten to my office and in general they're out there doing their lives there are yeah they're caring yeah. for others they're in relationship mm -hmm. there's things that aren't useful to them anymore mm -hmm. and they still have pain yeah it's not uh, a lifelong process to heal from abuse or trauma no, it does not need it to, be. Have to be it does not need to be You have been listening to the second part of a two-part conversation on integrating spirituality into social work practice. We hope you found the conversation to be thought-provoking. I'm Charles Sims, your host. Please join us again at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, professor and dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.